Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, where are you? Uh, I'm walking down the Albert Bank Bridge. I see. So you haven't found a portal yet? I haven't found a portal. You're there already, are you? Yes, I, yes. I, I found a booth. A booth? Okay. Yes. Okay, well, I'm just... I think I'm probably five, seven minutes away. Look out for the... You know they have to sit on a bench? There's a strange Egyptian bench. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, and there's a statue of a naked boy. <laughs> All right, it's all sounds very eerie. That's fine. It's a good start, though, don't you think? Yeah, very much so. All right. Well, I shall manifest myself in a minute. All right. See you in a minute. Bye. Bye. Three years in London had not changed Richard, although it had changed the way he perceived the city. Richard had originally imagined London as a grey city, even a black city, from the pictures he'd seen, and was surprised to find it filled with colour. It was a city of red brick, and white stone, red buses and large black taxis which were often, to Richard's initial puzzlement, gold or green or maroon. Bright red post boxes and green grassy parks and cemeteries. <laughs> Lots of cemeteries. Yeah, he had to get a little bit of goth in right at the we beginning. Go, we go, we're going goth early. Welcome to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Every episode, we take a book for a walk out into the wild to see if the world of fiction matches up with the real world. I'm Lloyd Shepherd. I'm a writer and digital producer. Hello, I'm Tim Wright, and I'm a digital writer and a producer of immersive fiction. Well, we're, we immersed ourselves a lot in this book because uh, well, we sub- well, you went into the underworld like Orpheus. <laughs> And came, I went, and came back. I went underground. That's a very uh, good reference for this author. Uh, and I stayed above ground. Orpheus or Morpheus? Uh, both, actually. Yeah. Both, actually. Yeah, yeah very yeah, good. So I did very there. good, yeah. <laughs> so we are doing uh, Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. Neil? Neil. Ga- Neil you can't even pronounce Neil, Neil right. <laughs> What's going on with you? <laughs> Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Which is a fantasy novel. Fantasy novel from 1996. Pub. This book is about a... Uh, well, it's, it's, what is it's, it about? Its central conceit is that there is a, a parallel world in London that is yeah. underground. The people who live in the underground world are occasionally visible to people living in the upper world. but uh, or He calls it London above and London below. But uh, most of the time they can't see them. So there's an obvious analogy with the homeless, which we'll come on to. Well, in fact, a number of the members of Neverwhere are people who who had a bad life upper ground, yeah, and then drifted into homelessness and yeah, and then went disappeared down a tunnel. And, and our hero, seen. Richard Mayhew, yeah, essentially rescues a young woman called Dor. Yes, this is a joke on Portia, and basically then accompanies her on a on a, well. We're going to talk about this on a quest through the underworld. It's not the underworld; it's it's, it's London below. It's not hell or anything like that. Well, Dor is being uh, pursued by two terrible assassins, Krupp and Valdemar. Krupp and Valdemar, and somebody or something has basically paid them to track her down. Because she holds a key. She holds a key. There's always a key in these things. There's always a key. I uh, think we should talk a bit about quests and so she's myths. called Dor, and she's got a key. Yeah. And she got a brand new combine harvester. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it's about Richard Mayhew discovering this underground London. Well, becoming part of it. And becoming part of it. He becomes invisible. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you've been down there. 
I have. So you've seen London Below. I didn't I like seen it. it yet. You, didn't, you didn't care for it. <laughs> I didn't care for it. Well, we sorry, s- I should say there were portals between London Below and London Yeah, above. so what we've decided to do for this is to basically go to the locations in the book where you can enter Neverwhere yeah. or, or you can appear from Neverwhere back into the real world yeah. and work out whether you can really do that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> go with us, listener. Go with us. <laughs> go with Stick was on this. Um, because we both live in South London, it seemed convenient to start at the, the, the only... The only South, South London portal. We're, we're going to Albert Bridge. Yeah. Because he he's gone there with anesthesia, um. the women's names in this as well. <laughs> Help me. Okay. Tim's struggling a bit with this one. Anesthesia had led Richard into a small park on the south side of the bridge, then down some stone steps set beside a wall. She relit her candle in a bottle, and then she opened a workman's door and closed it behind them. They went down some steps with the darkness all around them. The bridge in question, Albert Bridge. So this is weird because I can hear you but I can't see you. That was quite disturbing for me. I was sitting on a bench. You walked practically right up to me. took a photo of a green statue. I stared at you yeah. Like you were going to come and say hello, and you just walked off. And then I had to follow you over Albert Bridge. I'm still having trouble sort of keeping you in view. Yeah. Does that make me anaesthesia? No, I think that's because you, you've been spending too much time with portals and with people from London Under. And the yeah. minute you do that, you start to become. You start, you manifest to them, but you stop manifesting to me because I'm still from London above. Oh, I see. So I, that's why you keep fading in and out. So, so we're at our first portal, right? I travel by traditional transport, but from here on in we're doing it explicitly through London below. Yes, because it's all real. It's all real. We're going, we're, going to, we're going to travel across London using London below. I mean, I have a question generally about this book, which is that sometimes it would seem to me to have been easier just to go the London above route. And this, and this particular case is the most acute example of that because they go from they go, the portal here by Albert Bridge, the south side of Albert Bridge. We're sitting in Battersea Park on a promontory. Uh, and then underneath here is the Knight's Bridge or the Knight Bridge. Yes, which we have to travel through. But um, anesthesia gets. Anesthesia doesn't make she it. She gets grasped away. She gets pulled into in the, the mist. Night. Um, is that you or me? Oh, I suppose I'm the person who keeps getting lost, am I? I think it's going to be you, mate. All the way? I think you're, I mean, you're halfway gone to me already. Blimey, so I'm just going to spend the whole of this podcast being ignored and lost. I wonder whether you should take the London Below routes and I should take the London Above routes. And, and we see should, who gets there first. We should compare notes at the other end. That's not a bad shout. Yeah, you've, yeah. you've already been kind of... Well, I know all the routes. Embroiled in it. Well, I know. I, I, I didn't even realise it. No. I didn't even realise it. No. I was hanging out with those people. And it was having an impact. Yeah, you've been hanging around with underground people for some time, though, to be fair. <sighs> yeah, that's, that's the story of my life, mate, yeah. Anyway, some things around here that I think are interesting. So we came down some steps, didn't we? Well, we're in the park, we're in Bassey Park. We're in Bassey Park. And, and immediately, actually, off the south side, there is a padlocked gate, and you could go down some steps almost into the river. As in the book. Now, what I'm interested in is the green, blue and grey booths yep. at each end. Do you know what they are? Do I know what they are? Were they toll booths? They are, and they're the only last remaining example of toll booths on any bridge in London. Right. Hilariously, they didn't last very long. I think this toll bridge, it was only a toll bridge for a a few years, and then nobody wanted to pay, so they just didn't use it. So they've been boarded up for, you know, decades, if not hundreds of years, but they're still there. They never bothered to take them away. Well, if you don't know London, it's probably worth just saying Albert Bridge is upriver from Westminster and the city. Mm. it, It connects Chelsea and Battersea. A few things about it that you might want to know. It's probably most famous these days because it is lit up at night quite with a load of LED lights. It's very colourful at night. Yeah, it's very picturesque. Uh, so, so have you seen a picture of a kind of sus- Victorian suspension bridge lit up? It's almost certainly Albert Bridge. It's, got, it's pink as well during the Isn't day. Isn't a bit rude about it in the book? A kitsch monument spanning the Thames. Yes, kitsch. Interesting, isn't it? Do you know it's called The Trembling Lady? Is it? The Trembling Lady. That sounds like a... 
London Below exactly. character as well. Exactly, the trembling lady. Because it bounces up and down if too many people get on top of it. Well, famously, it's got signs at either end saying, armies must break step when walk- marching across this bridge. It had to be repaired in the noughties because apparently too many Chelsea tractors had been driving over it. <laughs> too many <laughs> tells sports you, utility Which tells vehicles. you what happened to Battersea in the 90s and noughties. It's got those narrow posts, doesn't it, at either end going onto the bridge because you did. quite often get stuck behind somebody in a Chelsea tractor yeah. who's trying to navigate through those posts. A couple of things down here. There's a very nice restaurant down here, Ransom's Dock. Really? What side of the river was it? It's on, the, on this south side here. You know, in the book, Battersea. in the book, Richard and his girlfriend are trying to go to a posh. At the beginning of the book, they're trying to go to a posh restaurant, aren't they? With, with Mr. Stockton, and we were trying to work out where that was. We couldn't find out where it was. It was all related to where Richard lives, and then we thought, let's not bother with all this upper London yeah. stuff, real yeah. stuff. Let's talk about portals. Yes. So then we came down here. Yeah. But anyway, the reason why I mentioned Ransom Dock is that it went out of business. They claimed the owners partly it was because. At the time, the bridge was shut for repairs because all the Chelsea tractors had ruined This bridge, Alba Bridge. So nobody was coming down here for dinner. And then the other thing is, one of the evil lords of London moved his portal from next door to Ransom Dock, where all his staff would eat. So they lost a huge number of revenue from the fact that one of the main baronesses of the underworld was um, relocated. Okay, who was that? Simon Fuller. Simon Fuller. Yeah, the uh, the genius behind S Club Seven. Well, let's get this straight: is that if this book is set in 1996, yep. if we think that, mm-hmm. what happens in '96, mate, uh, for Simon Fuller? What comes out of that portal right there? Uh, uh, Spice Girls, wannabe first single, wannabe Spice Girls suddenly emerge. From the portal, they're underwork. The Spice Girls sound quite London Belowy as well, don't they? They are like they dress London Belowy, don't they? Um, So, how are you liking that, Simon Fuller? I quite like Spice Girls coming out of the London Below and bursting into London Above. Yeah, but S Club Seven didn't. S Club Seven seemed very much of London Above. Yeah, so they're your crowd. Yeah, and you're the Spice Girls. Spice Girls are my crowd. This whole podcast is S Club versus Spice Girls. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) It seems an appropriate thing for two men in their fifties to be talking about. extension to the underground system but these plans came to nothing and when the war ended the bunk beds had stayed in the tunnels on their wire bases so i'm already mistrustful of mr neil gaiman <laughs> okay because he took he, he sort of talks about um, there being these underground places which we're going to talk about later in detail but he gets them roughly right or he just sort of makes them up yes obviously the bunk beds and all that stuff they weren't that, for troops well that's in clapham it's Clapham not in Battersea. South. It's not in Battersea. No, it's not in Battersea. It's in Clapham. It's along the line of the Northern Line. Yeah, and that underground high-speed thing, I'm not sure. Well, that is true. They were going to build an underground high-speed railway under the Northern Line. Yeah, not in Battersea, though. No, not in Battersea, no. No, so, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. It's all very it's well. not very specific. Well, it's all very well me wandering around in the Neverwhere. <laughs> um but if, when we get up into actual... I quite like the idea of you wandering around in the Neverwhere. <laughs> I think that's not a bad description of how you spend your life. <laughs> but when you actually turf up... Have you been wandering around in the Neverwhere, Tim? I'm going to be asking myself. <laughs> but when you actually get to the, you know, come up to the real world, you've got to get a few things right, haven't you? <laughs> you do. Let's you do. talk about Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman. Uh, cards on the table. Uh, I love comics. 
Yes. I love graphic novels. Yes. I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman's work on a thing called The Sandman. Well, that's what made him famous, isn't which it? Which is what really made his name, yeah. which is a, a, a massive project that he took on in the in the 90s and early noughties. Yeah. I think it's 14 volume, collected volumes of comics Amazing. about mm. this character who's one of the endless, who called Dream. Oh, who, your that. eyes are already rolling. And I love it. I love all that stuff. I read 2000 AD when I was a kid. I read all the comics and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I read kind of fantasy novels. Mm. Uh, all this stuff you hugely disapprove of. I listen to that sort of music as well. Yeah. Now, you did not. No. You had I, a very different experience. Well, no, I, I'm at a loss here. <laughs> I'm coming at this with from a state of ignorance and prejudice, I would say. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> no, I was allowed, uh, before I got tipped off to boarding school, I was allowed at one comic... The only comic that came into the house was called The Hotspur, and the only reason it came in is because my father had subscribed to it when he was a young boy. So it's basically a sort of 1940s comic turned up in the 1960s that I only got to read after my dad had read it, and that was it. Uh, otherwise, no comics. And in fact, I, I rebelled a little bit like Neil Gaiman, I suppose, in that I, uh, I remember climbing over the garden wall once, having stolen some money off my sister, to go down to the news agents and buy a Whizzer and Chips. Anybody remembers that comic? Does your sister know this? Does she listen to this no, podcast? Well, uh, well, so or is this a confession? No, no. Well, what happened was uh, the bloody news agent grasped me in, didn't he? He phoned, <laughs> he phoned my mum and said, oh, he's been down here buying a Whizzer and Chips. Buying comics? Yeah, yeah. Dirty so, books? Yeah. Obviously, I got spanked for that. Well, yeah, yeah. Right, so yeah, you, yeah. you associate comics with... So now I'm thinking about it, thinking that was the seminal moment where I thought, comics not for me. Wow, okay, <laughs> wow. So if we, if we do Freudian analysis, yeah, yeah. that whole world, comics, wizards, uh, heavy metal stuff. music. Goths, mate. Why are they all dressed up like goths? In the book? Yeah. Are they dressed like goths or are they dressed like... They are a bit gothy, of... aren't they? Well, I kind of, I think they're dressed wildly. So Neil they? Gaiman always wears black. He's he does, always got he, spiky He's very hair. gothy. He looks very like Morpheus in the Sandman, which I have read a bit of. Yeah, and yeah, there up. is a little, there is a little bit of self projection onto oh, the character onto of Morpheus. And in then the look, he's from East Grinstead, right? Yeah. And then just down the road in the Bromley contingent, Susie Sue is living down the road. Yeah. And then in Crawley, just the the other side of him, he's got Robert Smith of the Cure. He's literally a hammock between <laughs> the Cure and uh, What's Susie. What's going and the on in that part of the world? That well, I grew, up, I grew up in that part of the world. <laughs> so, why haven't yeah. you got that? So I <laughs> well, I, I think there's a fork in the road at around 13, 14. You either pick metal or you pick goth. Goth. And I went metal. Um, anyway, back to Gaiman. Back to Gaiman. Anyway, this has turned into a confessional. Yeah. His first big success, as we've said, is with this thing called Sandman. I mean, he, he was actually kind of a bit of a writer for hire in the, in the 80s and 90s. Do you know what his first book journalism. was? Um, no. What was his first book? A biography of Duran Duran. <laughs> Very good. I think he was something of a hack. He, well, in in the best possible, yeah, no, in the I best was possible too. way. That's fine. He also wrote a companion to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is probably more in his wheelhouse. Well, I th- now one of the things about him that's quite interesting is that I think he is quite keen to network and get in, and weave himself into the world of those kinds of writers and authors. Well, there's a great, great story about him finding a copy of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing mm. on Victoria Station. It's a bit, it's a bit, there's, a, there's a bit of myth-making myth about okay. this. I mean, anyone who knows anything about comics knows that Alan Moore is kind of the... He's the kind of the godhead okay. of the comics world. Yeah. Uh, and Swamp Thing was the thing that really made his name. And they became quite friendly. I think he sought him out, though, didn't Alan, he? Alan Moore sort of helped him Gaiman figure out sought him out and said, can you tell me how to write comics? He did. And Alan Moore said, yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. Yeah. And that, that's when he started collaborating. He started working on a various series... And then the Sandman, I mean, he wrote a couple of things for DC Comics in the mid-'80s. Sandman's first book came out in 89. Okay. A bit earlier than I thought, actually. And finished in 96. So, actually, interestingly, it finished in March 96. The next thing that came out was Neverwhere. Sandman is great, I think. I think it's an absolutely magnificent work. There's a very good Netflix adaptation at the moment, which is very faithful, which obviously Gaiman was involved with. He also wrote a fantastic thing, which may be more appealing to... Well, I don't know what I mean, but trying to persuade you. I'm just giving up. Anyway. <laughs> don't he, give up. Keep he wrote going. a very good thing called 1602. 
yeah. which basically transplants the kind of the superhero. Uh, I think it's the Marvel DC uh, Marvel superhero universe into Elizabethan England. Oh. It's very good. <laughs> oh God, it's very very good. <laughs> it just I, I'm, this is all very challenging for me. Well, yeah, you're, you're the, honestly, you're going to have a pain behind your eyes tomorrow. The amount of rolling that's going on. Okay, <laughs> I would like to put on the record that Neil Gaiman's brought my a lot of pleasure into my life in a very oh. in, a, in, a, in the nicest possible well, way. That's very I don't good. like everything he does. Yeah. I, I think he's a better comics author than a than a prose novelist. I yeah. think he probably would agree with that. Yeah. But The Sandman is one of my favourite things. I can reread it and reread it and reread oh, it. Oh, that's lovely. How lovely. He said patronisingly. <laughs> you know, I remember being... I think I was about 11 years old, and I, it was the first time I actually had the nerve to challenge a teacher. Mm. And I took my English teacher aside, and I said, look, OK, you have to explain this thing to me. Um... Why are comics banned? If we bring comics in, they will get, um, they'll get confiscated. I would love to lend some of my friends my comics and talk comics, but we can't. And he said, well, it's obvious, Gaiman. Uh, you see, the thing is, if you, if it was Gaiman, uh, it, it's <laughs> obvious because it's, it's like, um, it's, it's rubbish. If, uh, you know, if you read comics, you won't read real literature. And I said, I am, hang on, I'm the only kid in this school who has read the school library. Mm. <laughs> so, I've read yeah, it. Yeah. And, and I love comics, and that's obviously not true. Your quest is at an end. Go down there through that door. You can't miss them. They're auditioning. He was pointing towards Harrod's extensive network of food halls. A rook cawed maliciously. None of your beak, said Old Bailey to the rook. And to Richard he said, thank you for the little flag. He jigged around his stall, delighted, waving Richard's handkerchief to and fro. Auditioning, thought Richard, and then he smiled. It didn't matter. His quest, as the mad old roofman had put it, was at an end. He walked towards the food halls. The food halls in Harrods. Harrods. We've done it, haven't we? We've had a look. They passed the Bureau de Change and the gift wrapping section through another darkened room selling sunglasses and figurines, and then they stepped into the Egyptian room. Well, the escalator lobby is in Egyptian style. It's I've incredible. never seen anything like it. <laughs> Neither has it been in here for, what, three decades? Absolutely. Or more? I came in, I was the first person into the Harrod sale one year with me and my friend Tim. I'm slightly puzzled as to why you would be queuing up for the Harrod sale. Uh, we thought it would be a, a wizard, a wizard whiz, to queue up uh, for one stupid item. I think one of us was queuing up for a spoon and the other one for an egg cup. And we thought it'd be really funny if all the television crews came and interviewed us uh, and said, what are you queuing for? Hoping we'd say, you know, a sofa or something. And we would say a spoon. I'm, I'm surprised you got in at all. Right. Because what you were not aware of, and I was worried for you when we came here today. Why are you looking at my T-shirt? Well, it's a Pink Floyd T-shirt. You like Pink Floyd, don't you? Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But... Harrods has a very strict dress code. Did you know that? I didn't know that, no. This is from uh, The Independent in 1994. So okay. around the time of this book, right? Yeah. So none of this, none of this lot from the underworld are getting in here. No. The well, they code. can't be seen, Tim. It says, this is why you let you in, because no one can see you anymore. I know. Don't come as you are. The dress code can be summarized as follows. No beachwear. <laughs> No backpacks. I've got a backpack. Yeah, no riffraff. So two out of three for you, mate. You're in trouble. Tell you what, I've also now got croissant crumbs in my beard. It's getting worse I'm for looking you. very old baby. When the journalist confronted Al Fayed, the owner Al Fayed at the time, the chairman's office replied, quite frankly, our lady customers don't appreciate queuing up for their bagel or baguette next to someone in crotch-high shorts and a vest showing their hairy armpits. The dress code is a logical step. Did you say crotch high shorts? Yeah, yeah. That's very specific. Also, the idea that he's well, put a little innuendo anyway of lady customers queuing up for a baguette. He's already, he's already lowered the tone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, many famous people have fallen foul of the ruling, including Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan. Been thrown out of Harrods. They're coming together. Apparently. And the dress, dress code was off. 
Do you know who owns um, Harrods now? I told you actually. You told me it was Qatar. Qatar, Qatar the, Qatar the Qatar fund. Yeah, nice, eh? Ruining football, ruining shopping. The Qatar Investment Authority, Sovereign Wealth Fund, says here investments, says it owns 12.7% of Barclays Bank, it owns 17% of Volkswagen, it owns a substantial chunk of Sainsbury's, wow. and uh, it has a special relationship with the French government, a strategic partner, where it owns 12% of Lagardère, 4% of Total, another 5% of uh, Veolia, the, travel, com the yeah. travel brand, right? They don't pay any capital gains tax in France, a special status. Wow. And they own the Harrods Group. Oh yeah, they also own the Credit Suisse headquarters in London. That's, that's a portal. So they're buying up portals? And they also have bought the Shell Centre. Buying up portals? I reckon somebody in the Qatari Investment Fund bought this book as a, as a teenager in the yeah. 90s. And has since been trying to create it. Well, you know what though, mate? Then they're the perfect people to go and pitch and never wear cross-London immersive experience. <laughs> We should go and get some money. 20 million quid. Yeah. Just to develop the idea. The development. Just to develop yeah. the idea. 150 million budget. Yeah. As Let's a, do it. A global phenomenon. Let's do it. We'll give we'll give Neil They're Gaiman. The as well. We'll give Neil Gaiman a half a percent. You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that is curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. If you want to listen to the next episode of this podcast without any ads, you can do so right now by signing up at our Patreon page. Yes, you don't have to wait for part two. There's no ads. And you also get um, access to photos that we've taken on our field trips, videos, and some lovely maps. Well, uh, Tim does the lovely maps. I do the functional maps. How I'm going to do a map of Neverwhere... I'm not quite sure. Well, you're the only, you've been down there. I've not seen it. Yeah. Well, I mean, Neil Gaiman didn't like the visualisation of it at all, did he? He likes it as a book and as a radio thing. So he, when, he, when they tried to visualise it as a TV thing, he didn't like it. Oh, so well, Maybe I, he'll not... like your map. He likes maps. Oh, He's into fancy novels. Oh, I hope he likes my map. Make it like Lord of the Rings. Now back to the podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The girl took a deep breath and then she began to talk without looking at him as she talked, her eyes fixed on the ground ahead of her. Well, mum had me and my sisters, but she got a bit funny in the head. One day I got home from school and she was crying and crying and she didn't have any clothes on and she was breaking stuff, plates and stuff, but she never hurt us. She never did. The lady from the social services came and took the twins away and I had to go and stay with my aunt. She was living with this bloke. I didn't like him. And when she was out of the house... The girl paused, 
She was quiet for so long that Richard wondered if she had finished. Then she began once more. Anyway, it used to hurt me. Do other stuff. In the end, I told my aunt, and she started hitting me. Said I was lying. Said she'd have the police on me. But I wasn't lying, so I ran away. It was my birthday. Wow. It's quite good, though, isn't it? Yes, well, one of the good things about this book, Neverwhere, is that it's really, at some level, talking about homelessness. It is. That was anaesthesia talking about how she ended up being homeless and then descending into the London below. And the idea that people from Neverwhere are invisible is exactly that business, which, you know, I'm guilty of as anybody, is um, walking past people who are sitting out on the street on a piece of cardboard... And, and not seeing them. No. I think there was a moment, wasn't there, anybody who had been living in London in the mid to late 80s would recognise this, I think. There was a moment where the sense that there were a lot more homeless on the streets yeah. than there had been yeah, uh, and that it was a problem that was, in some senses, out of control and, and endemic. You know, that there was nothing you could do about it. There was always going to be well, homeless I think, people. I think, if not Mrs Thatcher, one of her followers, actually said that unemployment was a price worth paying for yes. keeping inflation down. She did say that. She didn't say homelessness was a price worth paying. No, but then obviously but, that when people were unemployed, then trying to find a place to to, to live... Was, was yeah. ...became and, and very actually, difficult. And also the, the first... Obviously in the recession in the late 80s, the first industry to die on its arse was the construction industry... And uh, as I read it, there were an awful lot of people from Scotland, and Richard's from Scotland in this book. Yes. But particularly from Ireland, young men who'd come over to work in the construction industry in London and then were thrown out. And there were, there were some onto real... Onto the streets. There were some real... I remember there being some places that were real collections or concentrations of people. I mean, we just talk about cardboard cities, didn't we? There was one in, uh, in the underground at Charing Cross. I remember that. Yes, the that was quite well the known. Strand. There was the very famous one called the Bullring, which there's some amazing pictures from 1989 in a Guardian piece I found, I'll post, which was now where the BFI IMAX is underneath the roundabout at the south end of Waterloo Yes, Bridge. it was kind of... They'd sort of built it without realising what they were doing. It yeah, was creating a, big, a place that was obviously going to be a place where people would try yeah. and take up residence. There were, there were more than 200 people living there at amazing. its peak. And that's in around the early 90s. It was Lincoln's in Fields was another one. Yes, I used to work around there, and that was that, that, was, that was quite a busy place. And then the last, the last one I was going to mention was the one at the south end of Tower Bridge, which is you know where HMS oh, yes. Belfast is, yes. which features in the book. I want to mention... Oddly, I want to mention... Um, um, Elspeth Howe at this point. Elspeth Howe. Elspeth Howe. Who that sounds, was, she sounds quite steampunky. Who was, uh, Who's she's Elspeth not, Howe? She's not remotely steampunky. Oh. She's the wife of uh, the then, as of in 1990, I'm talking about, the Deputy Prime Minister, Geoffrey Howe. Oh, okay. Who Why was, do you want to talk about her? Well, so uh, we mentioned Mrs. Thatcher. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, in my mind, homelessness in London is indelibly linked with her government and her policies. Absolutely. She was essentially defenestrated by the Tory party in 1990. And one of the big contributing factors was the speech that Geoffrey Howe made in the House of Commons mm. in 1990. Now, it's said, it was widely credited, that Elspeth Howe wrote that speech. And the reason that's interesting is that she was a leading campaigner against homelessness. Oh, right. And she's one of the main people who managed to set up this thing called the Rough Sleepers Initiative, which kicked off in 1990. Um, so under under John Major's government, actually. Um, now, by the late 1980s in London, approximately 1,000 men and women could be found sleeping on the streets of central London any one night. Um, so the RSI ran from 1990 to 1999, so into the Blair Labour government, cost over £200 million, and it was very successful. It very, it very quickly got those numbers down into the low hundreds yeah. as a result of investment and sort of targeted sending people into hostels and stuff like that. I just think that's interesting because this book's written in 1996. Yes. And by 1996, I'm not saying it was a solved problem, but it was on the way to being massively ameliorated. They cleared out the cardboard city in Waterloo in 98, I think. Yeah, well, I think that was largely to do with the Eurostar. I think they were only... No, they they wanted to build the IMAX. They only do something about it when it becomes publicly embarrassing. Yeah. And when, when somebody endorses it. So, for example, you know... Uh, we've ju- we've just had uh, our morning coffee in Harrods, and we we discussed uh, Lady Di, yeah. Princess Di. She became uh, the patron of Centrepoint, the big mm. uh, youth homelessness charity, in the early nineties, mm. and allegedly she. 
<laughs> Paul Burrell, again, not to be trusted, I would say, her <laughs> butler, his narrative, claims that she used to go out at night and stuff coats and other useful things for homeless people into bins for them to find secretly. As a secret that gift. sounds like utter nonsense, doesn't it? That she was, she was going around. That, don't you think that, that doesn't sound very effective well, for It sounds very of, uh, Neil Gaiman to me of a character who, who sneaks out at night and puts things in bins for other people to find. The night you coat. Think, you can have that one for nothing, The Neil. night coat That's, flyer. Yeah, you can have that one for nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A princess. Princess night coat. <laughs> I want to start, ladies and gentlemen, by making a plea on behalf of vulnerable young people in this country. Every young person deserves a proper start in life and those who have no family to turn to need to be able to rely on us as a society for the help and encouragement they need. Dor put her head on one side. Do you know where the Angel Islington is? Lamia blinked. Slowly, long lashes covering and revealing her foxglove-coloured eyes. Islington, she said. You can't go there. Do you know? Down Street, said Lamia. The end of Down Street. But it's not safe. Well, you've surprised me. I've surprised you about trains. You've surprised me about trains, because um, there are a number of abandoned old underground stations in... Yeah. Uh, Neverwhere. There's British Museum, which was a, which was an underground stop. Yes, which which Richard in the book says, oh, it never existed. He he, he says he, he doesn't believe in it. Yeah, uh, that's but one that most people know about. Yeah, exactly. The other one, just one, is Nightingale Lane. Yes, I've which was that. the original name for Clapham South. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't know. It only changed it just after it opened. And then, but then there's this this one, Down Street. Which Down I, Street. Up I popped. Out I came out of the shop. You didn't see me. No, I didn't see you. So you there's pop, a shop there now. There's a little sort of um, you magazine that, shop. You, you just you come out the back so of that. So if you go to Down Street, yeah, in Piccadilly, just off Piccadilly, yeah, you can't. Uh, you'll miss find it. where Tim materialised outside an old. Uh, we're actually you, standing. You can't miss it. It's we're actually standing tiles. next to the tube station, the yeah. abandoned tube station. There's, there's a big kind of air shaft next to us, which you can probably hear. Yeah, and um, it's got the classic red tile. So how was it down there? Was it all right? Did you come up well, the steps? What's quite disappointing about this for for us from London Under is they let people like you in it. Do they? Yeah. For a small cash fee. Small? Small? Yeah. £90 for a two-hour guide through this place, right? £90. You you could do Aldgate Station or uh, Aldgate South. You can do this one. So this was being disused since 1932. Well, okay. But the reason... Yeah, but when they... um, the, the way they sell it is they say, oh, this is one of the ones that Winston Churchill used as a bunker. And so you can get a whiff of Winston Churchill if you go down there and yeah. wander around the rooms in there, right? Not sure I want to get a whiff of Winston Churchill. <laughs> Look, if you're from London Under, you have to get used to that. <laughs> it's everywhere. The stink of Churchill. It's down there. The stink of Churchill. You do a whiff a bit, I've got to say. In 50 years' time, it'll be the stink of Johnson. It'll be down there, <laughs> won't it? Like the sewers. The it'll be absolutely disgusting. Wow. Generally, so it's a tourist attraction. It's a tourist attraction. Can you wow. believe it? It's a tourist attraction. I'm amazed you've not heard of it. Never heard of it. So you can go and visit it, listener. Yeah. If you go to ltmuseum.co.uk, what's on, slash hidden London, it's all there for you to book. 90 of your English pounds. I look, then I looked on TripAdvisor, right? Because I, just to see what, what you, you lot think of it. Yeah. Generally positive reviews. I'd say generally positive, but generally obviously positive. I was drawn to the ones that weren't so positive, which are very good. Yeah, very very good. Paul Newman of London. Paul Newman. Yeah, Paul Newman. Yeah. Vastly overpriced for anyone other than train spotter types. Okay. And then we've got Will J. Stretching history to breaking point is the title of his comment. Wow. Okay. Churchill hated the place. He was there very reluctantly for just a few days in late 1940. His personal bodyguard says so in his autobiography. He says he stayed there a few days at most. This is an important wartime railway site, not in dispute, but Churchill's bunker, fine dining, yeah, but not him, only tiny periods spent, all heavily counterfactual. 
one thing have noticed on TripAdvisor reviews, striking similarities between official London transport blurb and posted comments. Wow, that's, a, that's an accusation Could to be a coincidence, but worth a check. Can I assume that all these bad TripAdvisor reviews are left by men? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ooh, obviously. Yeah. A Fer- that's a Ferrari, listener, turning around in the muse. Nice. Wow. That's what a Ferrari sounds like in a tunnel. You you didn't see that. That's a London undercar. Okay. <laughs> Finally, we're doing a book in a time period that, that we're quite familiar with. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, well. Funny thing is that for all the gothy stuff going on with gaming and wandering around in with spiky hair and long coats and big black boots, that's not what was actually happening in 96, was it? No. Because it was lad, massive lad Do you know culture. what? I wrote down lads, lads, lads in my notes. <laughs> TFI Friday, Morning Glory, Jarvis invades Jackson stage, football, football, football. Football, Euro 96, <laughs> three lions on my chest, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's right? what I wrote down. That's so not Neil Gaiman. It was ground zero for Britpop and laddi- laddish publishing. And, uh, but don't you feel loaded. that's interesting that it was a sort of schism between the sort of those gothy comic book culture people and, and the laddie kit culture. That well, you've already said you don't worlds. like comics, so you're obviously associating with the, well, the loaded I don't know community. Where, well, presumably I am. I, I don't know where to go. I, I mean, I don't want to go down below with the goths. I don't want to be upstairs with the football lads. No. Where am I going to be? No, well, you always, you always carve your own furrow. Um, carve your own furrow? Carve your own furrow. <laughs> well, it was quite interesting in superhero-verse as well, at the, and, and comics-verse, because Christopher Robin died... Ah, and Spider-Man was born. Yes, I was interested. Tom Holland was born in 1996. I, well, I was interested in the deaths as well, because there were other sort of world builders. Yeah, like obviously, so Christopher Robin dies, so the yeah. Pooh world is Winnie yeah. the Pooh world it's is the end bereft. Of John Pertwee dies. He did. So seventies Doctor Who with and his, Neil Gaiman has written for Doctor Who with his. Of course he has. Of course he has. Yeah, very good episode. Oh. Steam. <laughs> <laughs> but with his velvet jacket and his frilly shirt. Oh, he was. He was. Hey, eh? he's the best doctor. Isn't he's he? John he, well, Pertwee. isn't he's the Marquis de Carabas, isn't he? He's the Marquis de Carabas, <laughs> isn't he? John Pertwee, very good. And then, obviously, the mightiest world builder of them all, Michael Benteen died. He did the, the death of Potty World, or whatever it's called. Yeah. Was it? Was it? What was it called? He had ridiculous things going on in his show where it, where he'd have the these sand br- that they, popped up. Pop, that you yeah, could see moving them, around like he had be. fleas or something. They were funny. Oh my god! Michael Benteen's funny. potty time. Potty time. That's <laughs> it. Michael Benteen's potty time. And obviously, potty meaning potty, and potty meaning mad. Very good. Come on now. That's that. So that's the kind of world I'm 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 in for. Well, Peter Andre obviously in this year embarked on his soundtrack to Neverwhere. With the he only released one track, "Mysterious Girl." <laughs> so obviously he was planning a uh, he was planning a, an opera about a rock opera based on Neverwhere. Is this true? But he never got past "Mysterious Girl." Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah, he's, okay. famously. This is all the myth building. Yeah, that's why you're into it, isn't it? This myth building. <laughs> yeah. I get it. Well, obviously Terry Pratchett was big then. Discworld novels. He had, he had two out that year. Out. Two, two just, and, and also Ian M. Banks had his, uh, some of his culture novels uh, were coming Accession out that, then came as well. Out that year. Yeah, so so world building. You know I didn't even look that up. I just know that Accession came out. So fi- fiction, fiction, yeah, fiction fictional world building, world building yeah. is becoming a thing, right? Now, the last thing in terms of myth making, which I think is important, is that in 1996, the Stone of Scone oh, yes. was returned to Scotland. It was. Now, this stone. Well, hang on a minute. Does that mean, because at the beginning of the book... Yeah, I know where you're going to go the with mar- it. The first market is at Westminster Abbey. Yeah. So do you reckon someone bought the Stone of Scone? Right? And hoofed it off to Scotland. There you go. Also, it's pronounced Stone of Scone. <laughs> oh, is it? No. <laughs> I don't care. No, it says... So they claim it's one story concerns Fergus, son of Urk, the first <laughs> king of Scots in Scotland, whose transport of the stone to Argyll, where he was crowned on it, was recorded in a 15th century chronicle. Some versions identify the stone brought by Fergus from the Leofal, used at Tara for inaugurating the High Kings of Ireland. Game would be all over this, wouldn't he? <laughs> what I like, though, is there's a Scottish academic called Mary McPherson. She claims that on, in 1819, on the 19th of November, as the sermons belonging to the West Mains of Dunsinane House were employed in carrying away stones from the excavation made among the ruins of Macbeth's Castle. This is mm. good. Part of the ground they stood on suddenly gave way and sank down about six feet, discovering a regularly built vault. None of the men being injured, curiosity induced them to clear out the subterranean recess. Wow. 
So yes. they'd fallen into the... Yeah, when they discovered a large stone, which is pronounced to be of the meteoric or semi-metallic kind. This stone must have lain here during the long series of ages since Macbeth's reign. Beside it were also found two round tablets of a composition resembling bronze. On one of these two lines are engraved, which a gentleman has thus deciphered, did the sconce of kingdom come until sylphs in air carry me again to Bethel. Wow. Yeah. Well, Mary McPherson said that. They're claiming that they think that Macbeth must have deposited the stone at the bottom of his castle on the hill of Dunsinane, where oh it was found God. by the workmen. Oh, my God. And then was brought up from the underworld. Under a wood, presumably. Yeah. Very so, good. Yeah, that that's all, very that's, good. That's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exciting. I want, I, want, I want to know more. <laughs> yes, well, that's the power of stories. The power of myth. As Neil Gaiman goes on about around, around the world at every lecture hall in town. So we should write a story of a quest to retrieve <gasps> the, the Stone of Scone. To correct the pronunciation the stone of, of Scone. <laughs> well, it's just a part of history coming back to Scotland where it belongs. So it's exciting for us as Americans to be part of that. The Stone of Destiny has nothing to do with Parliament. It's, uh, the Stone of Destiny is to do with our heritage. As far as history of Scotland is concerned, the Stone of Destiny goes way back further than even the Kings of Scotland. We've been waiting for 700 years for this stone to come back. And uh, it's a symbol of our sovereignty as a nation. And I look forward to the sovereignty coming back in reality when we have our own parliament. I now, therefore, on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen, place the Stone of Schoon in the care of you, the commissioners for the keeping of the regalia of Scotland. He passed the lights and the noise of the Virgin Megastore and the shop that sold tourist souvenir London police helmets and little red London buses, and the place next door that sold individual slices of pizza. And then he turned right. He turned into Hanway Street, and while he had taken only a few steps from the well-lit bustle of Oxford Street, he might have been in another city. Hanway Street was empty, forsaken, a narrow dark road, little more than an alleyway, filled with gloomy record shops and closed restaurants, the only light spilling out from the secretive drinking clubs on the upper floors of buildings. He walked along it, feeling apprehensive. Turn right into Hamway Street, then left into Hamway Place, then right again into Orme Passage. Stop at the first street light you come to. Are you sure this is right? Yes. Are you sure this is right, Tim? It's absolutely right. Well, you would know better than most. Mate, if you turned up here in 1996 and yeah. wait for someone to walk out of a door, that would have been me. It's your old offices. I'm, I'm feeling a bit nostalgic. Well, what, so we're standing outside your offices. We're standing at the end of Hamway Place. Yeah. By In, the, interesting that he bothers to go down Tottenham Court. He goes down past the mega store and past the pizza. The pizza slice place was there. Yes. Absolutely. But you can get into it from this side. You wouldn't need to walk down Oxford Street at all. Well, uh, you, the interesting about that is I only discovered quite late mm. that you could get into Hamway Street from the other end. Ah, so he I, didn't. Know I that. always associated with Oxford Street. Yeah. Now, Orm Court doesn't exist. No. There but is we, an Orm Place, actually, in London. There, is there? Where is it? There is. Um, I think it's near sort of Hyde Park. But actually, this uh, little this little place we've walked into around the side of the old Jewish school, is that right? Yes, that's right. Is a court. It's at the back of the Hakkasan restaurant. Have you ever been there? No. It's very posh. I went there for Christmas lunch once. Nice. Um, what used to be down there was a really fantastic Indian vegetarian uh, restaurant, which he mentioned in the book called Man- Mandir. That was there, okay. and it was very good. Okay. A tiny little place. So that was real. Okay, that was good Th- to know. Basically, just listener, just to let you know, I used to work at a digital agency called NoHo Digital. Yeah. And our first offices, in fact, before that, there was three of us remap journalists, four yeah. of us, four, three of us decided that we were all going freelance and we'd just find an office to share in yeah. the middle of London and this place came up as a short-term let because it was going to get knocked down. Because the building's new, right? Yeah, and uh, so we used to occupy one office bit and then actually what we used to do in this bit that's the main bit, uh, because they didn't care what we did with it, we used it as an indoor cricket pitch. We used to play <laughs> indoor five-a-side indoor cricket and smash the windows and everything. That's quite a London Below thing to do. It was quite weird. Yeah. And then um, one of us, Tim Carrigan, got the idea that he wanted to start publishing CD-ROMs on CD-ROM and Electronics Start an Agency. And a year later, I joined him as their editorial director. So that's 95. Yeah. By 96, we had about 
I just think about 20, 25 people in there. Wow. Knocking out screensavers and CD-ROMs. Screensavers. The first, uh, sort of first few websites that you Dot might SRM consider. files. So it was, uh, it was quite a happening little place. Yeah. So what was Neil Gaiman doing hanging around here? Well... Hey. Probably I didn't went see the, him. Probably went to the Virgin Megastore. I didn't see him in his knee-length boots and his long leather jacket. <laughs> I don't think so, mate. I don't think so. No. If you're not coming in here, if you haven't got your Armani trainers on, you you forget been, it. You might have been to Bradley's. <laughs> One thing I would like to point out is the streetlight, though, because he mentions yes, the streetlight. He does, and that is perfect. And isn't there's it? a very old London, that would have been an old London gas streetlight, right? Yeah. Right outside your old office. Yep, that was always there. And it's like, it's got that kind of. It's got a bit of line the witch in the wardrobe vibe about yeah, it, I yeah. would say. Yeah, no, that's good. But so if you want to come here, yeah, just, yeah. You're meant to do, Virgin you turn around no Widdishins, he says. Isn't that where you do it anti-clockwise? Anti-clockwise. So I'm going to do that now. And then, and Candyman, then, Candyman, Candyman. That th- that's it. And then he appears. Here I am. Oh, my God. You can see me. <laughs> I can see you at last. I just had a disembodied voice. I think my car was parked in Orn Court. I think it probably was. Yeah. I'm very excited about this. I think it's the first time I've ever been in a book as it were, that it's a place where I actually would have been. Yeah. I would have literally have been here. Yeah. I would have been hanging out that window saying, Oi, what are you doing? Yeah, you built oh, your... Um, good times. You built your business empire on top of a portal to London below. Obviously no coincidence. No. I think that probably makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I would have said... I'd say it's like doing it over an Indian burial ground or something. Yeah, exactly. Certain kind of vibe. Indian restaurant, <laughs> Indian burial ground. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I came over all nostalgic there. That was a bit of a voyage back in time for Blimey. you. Blimey. Blimey. Back to 96. Yeah. I feel so old. 96 was good, wasn't it? Well, it, it, honestly, it was frantic. My 96 was frantic. Yeah. I just moved into a new house. I had two small kids, and I'd just started. I'd become a director of a, 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 gro- a massively growing business. Yeah. I was absolutely knackered. Well, I had just, uh, my second child had just been born, and I was about to tell my wife that I was giving up journalism to go and work on the internet. Oh. <laughs> and she'd go, what's the internet? I told her I was going to go and work for Yahoo. Yeah. And uh, she said, what's Yahoo? What the hell is Yahoo? I said, it's a search engine. And then she said, she told me afterwards that her and her secretary had looked up Yahoo in the phone book <laughs> to try and figure out what it was. Uh, so that was the first part of our adventure with Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Yes, it's quite fun, isn't it? Popping up, they're popping down. Well, you survived the uh, London Below very well, I thought. Uh, you yeah. did start looking a bit gothy by the end. I was, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to end up in Forbidden Planet in the a black eye- coat, aren't I? The eyeliner was a surprise, I must say. <laughs> and yeah. in part two, we're going to continue our journeys through London, yes, well, we're going, London we're, Below. Yes, we're going a, a bit further uh, east, aren't we? We are. So we're going to head towards Tower Bridge, where they're having another of these fairs, aren't they? We are on HMS Belfast. HMS Belfast. We're not going to talk about HMS Belfast too much because it's a bit boring. It's a bit boring. Um, But the fact that um, the Marquis de Carabas comes back to life on top of a a wall. Oh, a very particular wall. A very particular wall. That was of interest. Yeah. I've never been to a wall like that. No. And then... You took me to another wall that was underground. You same, you came underground. Same wall, another bit. That was amazing. Okay. Then we were on the tube station, and finally we're going to end back in Soho. I was so hoping that we were going to end up at the Glassblowers pub. Nearly, but not quite. So come with us. And uh, if you want to listen to that right now, it's on the server waiting for you. Just head over to patreon.com, chuck us a couple of quid, literally a couple of quid, uh, and you can listen to it immediately. Straight away. Otherwise, we'll see you in a week. It's full of lovely information about underground London. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.